Welcome to the show. Paul George, Deacon Adam Conk in studio. And we got Uncle Chad here today. Uncle Chad. Nunk Chad. Nunk Chad. <laughs> Nunk Chad. If everyone could uh, actually be in as we plan the show, I think that's probably the goal of the show is the planning. Yeah. It's beautiful, really. Yeah, it it's is. It's like we have it all together. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so thanks for listening in. If you're on radio, KLFT Radio, or on the podcast, thanks for being a part of the show. Um, yeah, so uh, we're in interesting times. Uh, there are actually two tropical storms heading for the Gulf at the same time. Really? Have you guys seen this? Are they going to merge? <laughs> well... It is 2020, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking, why not just merge into a superstorm? How cool would that be to witness? I mean, like, it wouldn't be cool to have it happen to you, but just that, like, I mean, does that even, is that real life? Yeah, Can that no, really it's happen? crazy. So I'm just looking on the radar, and, you know, by next week, you know, these two tropical storms may turn into hurricanes, and they're they're coming up, you know, like, it's like almost like right now they're splitting Louisiana on each side. <laughs> so I don't know. Like it's just so crazy, you know, but if they did merge, it would be like the super storm. And I do think there is an actual name of like storms that merge. I don't know what that name is. The perfect storm maybe, was a movie about that. Maybe uncle Chad uh-huh. can find that out. Since yeah. He's I'll, uh, I'll look it up. The great, he's uh, our content manager, uh, producer. So anyway, it's, it, it's crazy, but you know, you think about 2020. What else would happen in 2020? It doesn't really matter at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. You know, superstorms, pandemics, bring you know, it, whatever. When two hurricanes come in close proximity and merge, the weaker hurricane can orbit the stronger hurricane, <laughs> <laughs> like a planet around the sun, and it's called the Fujiwara effect. Fujiwara. Fujiwara. So it actually can happen. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Uh, it's possible for them to collide into one larger, stronger storm Ooh. if the atmosphere is right. Ooh. Does it get a new name? I don't know. Like Megastorm. Fujimama. I wonder Fujimama. if it just takes on the last name of the the larger <laughs> hurricane. Like like when <laughs> like people marriage. get married. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah, so that's real. It's real, folks. 2020, here we are. But uh, please, uh, pray for that if you listen to the show and for all the folks who might be affected by the storm. So anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, so, Uncle Chad, you have a have you seen? What did you say? That is so interesting. Oh, for real though? For real though. I was browsing through the news cycle and I found, I didn't know this, but a lot of homeless shelters during COVID, you know, to, to protect their the people that were living there, ended up sending their homeless to hotel rooms. And so the homeless would stay individually. Mm-hmm. Each person would have their own hotel room and be taken care of that way. So be fed, get good hygiene, whatever. But they noticed that it had a super positive effect on him, which is really kind of cool, hmm. like mentally. And they, they have a whole case of this woman who was um, had some childhood trauma and just really was not able to get over it and still mentally struggling. But once they put her in the hotel room by herself, she felt safe for like the first time. Wow. And yeah, she's doing well. Like this woman's like overcoming a lot of her mental distress by being safe in a hotel room. That's like a little positive effect of the pandemic. Our homeless mentally are doing better. Um, yeah, and I think just probably going out of a shelter into like a hotel, it's clean. You know, you feel like, you know, like, you know, you have some dignity 
you know, so I don't know if you guys, you know, when you travel and you go into a hotel, you're like, ah, it's nice. Mm-hmm. I feel rich. You know, <laughs> and you're, you're not really, but you feel better. I don't have to make the bed. I don't have to make everything's <laughs> clean. You know, it's like, you know, if I'm traveling and I somehow, because I have, you know, a lot of air miles, I get upgraded to first class it's like <laughs> you know, i'm like the poorest person in first class but i feel biggest smile though yes i feel oh, yeah. i feel like great um cleanest plate after you know once they bring you the good food hmm. mm. yeah definitely that also um I, I don't think we understand enough the psychological impact of just being homeless where it really mm. is not a safe situation you get a shelter at the night, that's true, and it's not a very dignified way to spend your night, but during the day, it is a very dangerous occupation to be wandering the streets and to be in these little communities that form because it's a lot of mental instability, um, especially for a woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the situations you can get in are very psychologically... I mean, us living normal life is stressful. Mm-hmm. So imagine you got all the normal necessities of life. I need to eat. I need to have a place to stay. And you don't know where any of that's coming from. And then you have these people that are threatening your life in a variety of ways. And that's how you live your life every day. I mean, it's very problematic. So I'm not shocked at all that if they get some safety and some peace and quiet, mm-hmm. they, their mental state gets a little back to normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It'd be really neat to see uh, a lot of homeless come out of this on the uh, on a better end. I mean, I know that People are becoming homeless because of this. It's unfortunate. That's true. Well, you know, hats off to the folks who are reaching out to the homeless people, people who are, Mm -hmm. you know, on the streets. uh, You know, know, one of the most powerful sort of uh, seasons of my life was, you know, when we opened up homeless shelters during Hurricane Katrina and just spent days, weeks, months with people who lost their homes or who didn't have a home before that, who were on the streets, who ended up in the shelter. And one of the things that we found was the greatest effect was just making the shelter a positive, safe place for folks. They didn't have to worry about where they got clothes, Mm -hmm. so we provided that. They didn't have to worry about um, where they got food, provided that. Everyone was given a space to stay in, and that somehow helped. Um, We just, we provided like you know, church services and um, dance music, and um, they weren't forced to leave, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, they didn't have no nowhere to go. Whereas a lot of shelters, like you have to leave during the day and go mm-hmm. on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, during a traumatic time, just for them to have a space that was safe, that was theirs, we we would wash their clothes for them and bring them back. Yada yada yada. Um, and as much stability, I can't imagine if you're on the streets all the time, you know, just the worry, the fear, the anxiety. We would all go crazy. We would like all that. go crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. And you know, the, the church, this is really, um, it's sad in America, we're going to see a rise in homelessness as we've been seeing, especially in the big cities, because the bigger we get from like a government standpoint, as far as what the government provides, <clears throat> This is one area where, for some reason, the government doesn't particularly provide. You know, like, um, we don't have a huge homelessness agency that's able to process mm-hmm. government funds to help deal with these crises. So it's mostly citizen-based, like what we're going to do to solve this problem. And the church is a leader throughout the country in, in trying to solve this problem. 
and not just the Catholic Church, Christian groups as well. And and so it's a it's a particularly Christian thing to do to shelter the homeless and to worry about these people because uh, no one else will. Like no one else is going to worry about these folks. And they're being actively rejected at, in certain cities, and you know what I mean, like putting putting barriers up and making it illegal to be homeless and. Uh, which I feel like maybe I mean I guess maybe I shouldn't have a, an opinion about this, but I don't know. I don't, like, I don't feel like it helps. I don't know. Making homeless. Make, yeah, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it. <laughs> I don't think it makes people less homeless. Right. You know what I mean? Well, if we made stupid illegal, it wouldn't fix that. <laughs> <laughs> can't fix stupid. No, you can't fix that. So. <laughs> um, yeah. No. It's it's. Um, you know, it's something that we can pray for, particularly during this pandemic. And, uh, you know, if you are listening and you look in your local city where you're, you're at, there is probably a Catholic Charities um, or some type of service like that that actually provides housing and food for homeless folks, people who are on the streets. And those ministries are, are extremely important. And mm-hmm. oftentimes we don't think about them, you know, because uh, we could— you know, we can go months and not see a homeless person because of maybe the area we work or drive. But there are times where we pass homeless or we're, you know, in certain areas and we're like, what can I do? Like, how can I help? You know, I don't know if I personally can, you know, other than like give the person a dollar who's standing on the street, what can I do? There are actual services that really help, you know, uplift and uphold the dignity of the human person um, who are you know, struggling or living on the streets. And look, it's a complicated issue mm-hmm. because a high percentage of folks who are homeless um, have psychological issues, struggle with, uh, you know, drug and alcohol addiction, um, you know, are in need of medications. You know, there, there's a lot of layers to the issue. And a lot of times we just look at the issue as very black and white. Like, mm-hmm. get a job, you know, and mm-hmm. then you won't be homeless. Well, uh, we don't know that person's story, their struggle. Um, maybe they're, you know, have psychological problems. Like they don't, you know, mental illness is huge amongst homeless folks. So it's very complicated. It's not just, hey, go sleep in the shelter for a night. Tomorrow I'll give you a job and then you'll have an apartment. That would be great. Um, but it it is certainly way more complicated. So I have a lot of empathy for folks who spend their time ministering to the homeless mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's not even as simple as just feeding the homeless. It is very, very, very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I often think, you know, with Christ, you know, uh, Jesus came, like he spent a lot of time with the sick and not only the physically sick, but the mentally ill, the, you know, the leopards, the outcasts, the, the homeless, basically people who were shut out in the streets and, you know, pushed to the outskirts of town because they were dirty and sinful and unclean. And Jesus wasn't afraid of that at all. So as a father, do you feel like you have to, how do you approach the concept of homelessness and what it all that it is with your children? Like, I feel like it can be a sort of uh, maybe a scary topic. I don't know the right word for it, but you know, it can seem like something that you don't want your kids to see, or some families don't want their kids to see at all. Do you do you introduce your kids to homeless and let them minister with you, or or do you just talk about the concept of the topic? You know what I mean? Does it make sense? Yeah, I think it's really important as your kids grow up to um, to expose them to you know the needs 
of people, you know? I mean, the, as Catholics, I mean, we're certainly called to uh, uphold the dignity of every human person, right? That's every human person, you know, no matter what. And there are a lot of people who are struggling, uh, you know, and so a lot of times we'll want to hop on an airplane and go do a mission trip in another country and be exposed to the third world and it's eye-opening and it's life-changing. But there are little third worlds in our every town that we live in. There are the small third worlds. And uh, to, to see those and uh, to, you know, have an experience of those, to take your kids to, you know, a soup kitchen to feed the homeless and, and to have conversation, I think is really important because I think that's where they really begin to see the face of Christ in a real unique way that they haven't experienced before. And part of us educating our children in our faith is, I mean, you could call it social awareness, whatever, but the idea is that when you live in a place, other people live here. And it's not just us in our own little bubble and our own needs and our own wants, but there's a whole community of people that God loves, that lives all around us. And um, so for me, it's, it's, it's this idea of making sure I raise an adult that's aware of other people, that they exist, and that they have needs, and um, that we are responsible for them in a certain way, you know? So we just moved to a new town, and I'm grateful in a sense because I think we'll be able to better engage with the poor and the homeless in the town we're in than where we were because it's so complex where we were, you know, like it's, it's difficult. So, you know, I'd bring the kids to St. Joseph's diner every now and then. And, and we, you know, that way, um, we'd pack little granola bars in the van for when we see homeless people. So they say, Oh, look, there's one. Can we give them the, the granola bars just to train them to see people and not just drive past without even seeing them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but that was really the best we could do where we were, but like in the new place we're at, um, there's a better in opportunity for engagement and actual relationship with people. So I'm excited about that. But to, to just teach them, you know, like, look, here's the city we live in. Here's kind of how people make money. Here's where people are that don't make a lot of money and how they live. And, you know, we can try to help them to have a better life while we're here, while we live in this city. Yeah, you know, we do live in a world, you know, a lot of ways that, um, you know, we kind of live in our own bubbles. We live sheltered. We hang out with people who look like us, act like us, pray like us. You know, it's because it's safe. But Christianity uh, doesn't ask us to be safe. You know, certainly protect ourselves. I'm not talking about, but safe in, in a way of, you know, who we see, how we see them, how we minister to them. Like, you know, I'm no different than a homeless person, right? Like, and this is what Mother Teresa taught us, you know, that that she would see the face of Christ and the people that she was ministering to it, you know, she's no better, you know, we're no better. And I think it's important that, you know, when you zoom out and you think of, you know, Catholic social teaching is that we're, we're all, we're all human. We're all created in God's image, right? We all have dignity. And when we say all, it doesn't mean all the people who are like me. (laughs) It literally means all people, right? And, I think what you brought up, Adam, is that, you know, to teach your kids just how to see the differences and to acknowledge them and then to have compassion and empathy because that's what Christ would have done, right? Christ saw people and he had empathy for those folks and he did something about it. And the greatest dignity we have is that we're made for eternal life with God. 
And the thing is, God has sent the church to preach the gospel to every creature. That's already happened. And the apostles in their lifetime got this done. And so, like, you know, those poor in my city are not poor in my city. The rich in my city, some, somebody is sent to them to, to be the gospel to them. Like, that is, mm-hmm. a, that is a fact of our faith. It's like we, and if it's not me, then it's someone else, right? So I can't solve every need. I can't be the one to preach every gospel. But somebody has been called to do that. And so these conversations need to take place in the church where families can have this conversation like, hey, there's this need of these folks over here. I don't think I'm called to meet that need because of X, Y, Z reason, but who is? Mm -hmm. Or maybe I am called and I need to discern that together. Like somebody is called to love that person on the street. Mm-hmm. And and if it's not our families, maybe there's a religious order God wants to come into our town and take care of that. How can we make that happen? And I think that's the discern- the act of discernment every healthy Catholic church has in whatever city they're in. How are we going to bring the gospel to every person? And if it's not me, then who is it? Because mm-hmm. God has a plan, and God has already sent someone to bring the gospel to every creature. Amen to that. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back since we're dealing with social issues. We're going to talk about another issue that I've noticed out there. All right, we'll be right back. The Paul George Show is made possible in part by our partners at Solidarity HealthShare. Solidarity is the Catholic solution to the health care problem. Are you paying too much for your health care cost? Solidarity HealthShare is a health care sharing ministry which provides an ethical way to fund health care costs while protecting and practicing our Catholic beliefs. Best yet, Solidarity HealthShare's members are exempt from the fines and penalties in the Affordable Care Act. Visit SolidarityHealthShare.org. That's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening in on radio or on the podcast. As uh, Uncle Chad is uh, putting in... What is that? Contact solution? Yeah, his eyes. It. His eyes are burning. I get. I get some new ones today. He's got the COVID eyes. This is the first time I wear contacts in five years. So I'm trying to figure it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, we were talking about seeing earlier. You know, being able to see people, see their vision's, dignity. Vision's important. Vision's and really important. Spiritual vision, I think, is actually the most important thing. Like to be able to see spiritually, right? Like, like, and you know, to see the way Jesus sees, you know, uh, St. Paul, uh, talks about this. It's, it's a really just short verse. He says, we have the mind of Christ, like to be able to think as he thinks, to be able to see as he sees. Um, so what, you know, one of the issues has been interesting. And in our first segment, if you didn't get to listen, you can go back and listen on the podcast, uh, is, you know, we do this marriage work, you know, we do marriage conference, engage conference. We also do, you know, some marriage coaching, uh, online, uh, through zoom, you know, and we meet with couples together. Okay. So 95% of couples that sign up for, you know, something to, to grow in their relationship, which is nothing. Like if you, if I said, you know, Adam, you and your wife going to go to a conference or go on a retreat, you're like, yeah, you know, we we're constantly working on our marriage, but, um, 95% of those folks who uh, sign up or inquire about working on their marriage or women, you know, so, you know, like the wife will investigate or look into, Hey, we, we have some issues we need to work on it. You know, 
what are your thoughts? And then the next conversation is, well, I'm going to have to convince my husband to, <laughs> to do this, right? So then there's this convincing that she has to go through to convince her husband. And look, it's 95%, 90 to 95%, you know, as we look through our data. But um, so it's not 100%. It's not every guy. But the majority of women are looking to grow their marriage. And then it's like, then they got to convince their husband to kind of get on board with that. And I just find it really interesting that it's like, oftentimes, it's the man that should be leading the charge in the family spiritually. But yet, it's, it's really kind of the mom, the wife, the woman who's taking charge of making sure that you know the marriage is stable, it's moving, it's it's working on it. And I just find it interesting. Now, we should be doing this together as husband and wife, but it seems like oftentimes it's the wife who's making the moves. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it follows just a general trend of men just checking out of things. Um, there seem to be two prominent temptations. The first is the man to be self focused and like pleasing himself, having the fun he wants to have, the hobbies he wants to have, the um, escape time at night, whether it's watching sports or whatever he wants to have. And then everyone else just has to accommodate that, you know? So that temptation, just be very self-focused. Or the other temptation to work really hard in one specific area of life to the neglect of all the others that are more important. Hmm. So like work really hard at this thing, but I'm going to leave it to the to the woman, to the wife, to make sure the kids get their sacraments, make sure uh, we're praying as a family, whatever. That's all her domain. But I'll make sure I do this, you know? And uh, not realizing that, you know, you're supposed to do all of it. Like, you're the man in all the situations. It's not like you're God's only asking you to do one small thing in your family. Like, you're supposed to be actively engaged in all of it. And I see it all over the place, and sometimes it leads to divorce. Sometimes it leads to whatever. Uh but a lot of times it doesn't. It just leads to a general dissatisfaction in life and in marriage and wives wishing they had more, uh, husbands being pretty content with how things are. Yeah. I mean, only <laughs> 60% of married folks, 60% of married folks say that they're not happy in their marriage. So that's, that's a lot. That's a, major, that's a that's lot. That's too many. You know, and I think what ha- happens oftentimes, and look, there's a lot of factors to this. You know, we all come into our marriage with with issues, and maybe we didn't deal with those. Um, you know, and then we get married, and you know, we have kids, and our jobs and careers grow, and and then we get busy, and so we haven't developed the tools to work on the marriage. And you know, there's a lot of factors. So it is okay to step back and say, there's some gaps missing. We need help, and we need to grow. You know, I find that couples who just can name that their desire. Every couple desires to have a good marriage. No one gets married and says, you know, I want this thing to be miserable. You know, I don't want to be in love. I, I want to be, you know, separated from my spouse. I want division, you know. No one says that. So if you can get that desire, we both desire to have a good marriage, a great marriage. And if you have the humility and the vulnerability to say, okay, I'm willing to um, look at the areas of our marriage and my life in particular that I can and should work on to get to that goal of having a happy marriage. That's the place I think oftentimes where guys shut out. They know the big picture. They want a happy marriage. Of course, who doesn't, right? 
um, they got married in the first place, right? Because they thought it was good and it was the right thing and they had a good desire. So they saw the beginning and the end. It's, it's the in-between when the wife kind of exposes the issues of saying, oh, you work too much or you're not present when you're home or it would be great if you led us in prayer or, you know, if we could emotionally connect more, you know, and starts naming some of those those things. It's like for a man, th- there seems oftentimes to be, you know, closure, like it shuts down, you know, the conversation ends. That's, you know, that's the point where I'm seeing in all this is that the guy has to figure out how to re-engage in vulnerability and humility of saying, you know what, you're right. I, I need to work on that. And, and what, what can we do? Well, I think with it, what the man probably hears when he hears all of those things is maybe not exactly what she's saying, like, hey, I need you, or hey, I want you to be more involved in my life, and I want you to be more involved in the kid's life, and I love you, and I love being around you, and I love hearing from you, like, which what she's actually saying, what he hears is probably, like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I am failing at marriage. I'm... And and I think I can't do this. Right, right. right. And I, I think a lot of men I mean, well, it can it's a simple way to put it, I guess. We have this fight or flight response all the time and, and men are like look at their job and they're like, I'm gonna fight to get a raise, I'm fight to make as much money as I can, I'm gonna fight to to whatever and tackle this challenge that I have at work. But when it comes to the home life, anytime there's a criticism or a difficulty or, or an emotional problem to get over, they're like, Oh, let's run away. Let's get away from it. And maybe if I ignore it or avoid it it'll just go away or, or like maybe I made the wrong decision and I should have married somebody else because they wouldn't complain about my problems. Right. Or, and then I feel like it really quickly goes to that. That extreme, because here's the thing that uh, for a man's core question is we want to know, do we have what it takes? Right. So, mm, yeah. so to hear the opposite of, can I do this? Do I have what it takes? It's like, it's like slinging arrows. Right. So then we shut down. One of the things that's very positive about manhood is that, we we love to do things we're good at and mm-hmm. we love to conquer those things that we're good at you mm-hmm. know so that's mm-hmm. why we find jobs you know in things that we're good at right you know someone plays sports and you know someone's a builder and someone's great at design and someone knows how to you know do business or money or you know electric and then you just you just hone in and you're like this is what I'm good at and and you feel really good about it the thing about marriage is that it's not something you're automatically just good at and you can conquer. It just takes work because you're dealing with another human person and there's no like formula to make it work. It's engaging together, right? So that's scary because to to understand that I'm not going to always be good at this, that's really scary for a guy. And unfortunately, the best time to deal with that is at the very beginning of the relationship. But when they try to start dealing with it is about six years into problems. Mm. So like the problems in marriage start and then six years later, they, they're finally convinced to do something about it. But if back when they were dating, there was this sense of uh, taking ownership in the, mar- in the relationship and like making sure it's healthy, making sure she's happy, you know, that's the easiest time to mm-hmm. do that because you don't have all the baggage, you don't have all the hurt, you don't have all the wounds. Um, and I, honestly, I fear for young people today because they're treated to, te- to, to treat dating like, like an interview process. Like, I'm going to 
make sure you're the type of woman who has everything I need. So when we go on dates, you have to prove something to me. That's the guy's <laughs> mentality. <laughs> you need to prove that you're worth it to me. And that is the opposite of love. Because maybe mm. if you find that, that one who has all the checklists and everything like that, you started the relationship so poorly. There's no trust there. A woman trusts a man who's in love with her, who mm. looks at her and, and is just blown away and captivated by her. She trusts that man, not the man who says, you know what? You are adequate. I have met all my demands for a woman. We can start a relationship now. She trusts love. That's what she trusts. She doesn't even trust ability to provide as much as she trusts the fact that you love me and you'll die for me and you'll do everything to be with me because you're in love with me. Right. And if that be, if I'm not saying on the first date, you come out and say that, <laughs> but if, 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 if we dealt with things with our young people and in those early stages of marriages better, then we wouldn't see down the road men just having too much to overcome to face the issues, you know, and reestablish that trust. Um, so I just wish our marriage prep revolved around dealing with some of these things more effectively. Yeah, and look, church. if you're married, like nothing's lost and there's, there's always hope. You can always work on it. And trust me, like we've worked with couples who have been you know, just on the brinks. I'm talking about the brinks and they've worked through it, you mm -hmm. know, and, and you have that openness to doing that, you know, for a man, their core question is, do I have what it takes? So if you're a woman, listen to this, one of the most powerful things that you can do for your, your husband, you know, even if you, you're having a hard time doing that is to affirm him in what he does to help him to feel like he is a man, to help him feel like he has what it takes, to affirm him when he does something well, to not always be pointing out the failures and nagging, but really to empower him. And, and uh, that's not to blow smoke, it's just really a, a guy really wants to feel that he can do it, that he really can, uh, even when he can't. For, for the guys listening, what a core question of a woman is, do you see me? Am I beautiful? Mm. Do you love me even when I'm imperfect and messy? Mm. Like that's what a woman wants to know. And when a man can can love a woman, right? Not because of what she does, like you were talking about, Adam, but just just because of who she is. When a man just sees his wife for who she is, loves her in her imperfections, man, the walls come tumbling down, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this real love and emotional unity because the woman believes in the man and the man sees the woman and the two are in love again right and that that can happen and it needs to happen over and over and over in our relationship it's that should never ever go away right i mean one of the greatest places to teach this is in the home like with your own children is you know like you, you want to teach your kids you know to just through your marriage that you love your spouse through their imperfections, through their messiness, right? Because w when they go to date and to fall in love and to find a spouse, they need to understand that they're not looking for the perfect person because that doesn't exist, mm. right? They're, they're looking for someone that they can love authentically despite that person's imperfections, right? Yeah, and the only way that's possible is if God is calling you to that person. Right. You know, like that's discernment is important for marriage because the source of that love that will never grow old is God and his will for you. And that is the only check. 
God wants me to marry you. Like, we've discerned that. Mm -hmm. That is enough to be a source of love for the rest of your life. Now, it's not going to be easy. It's not like it's not going to be work. But if you have a sense of that conviction, then you can you can do anything in marriage. But if you lack that conviction, the woman's going to manifest that by a sense of, I'm not... I don't trust you as a man, so I'm going to nag you all the time about things you don't do, you know, because she lacks that conviction that this is God's will for her and that this is the man God wants her to be with, you know. And if the guy lacks that conviction, he's just going to escape like you were talking about. Like, I'm not good enough, and even if God wants me to do this, I'm not good enough to do it, so I'm just going to just going to check in now and then, but, like, I'm not fully engaged. So this conviction that this is God's will for me is that source of that love that can unite the two and, and lead to a satisfying marriage. Without that, it's hopeless, I think. And that's what happens, is when a man doesn't feel like he has what it takes, he gives up, he ejects, he hides, he goes to the man cave, he gets lost in work and hobbies, and dis disengages from the family. Mm, like, right? yeah, I can't do anything wrong if I'm not around. Exactly. <laughs> I, can't yeah. mess, I can't mess this up. And then what, what the wife will do in return is either just keep nagging and pushing him away, or then she just just throws up her hands and 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 then there's division in the marriage, right? Um, and then you know then the husband will start attacking. And then what a husband often does is then will pass blame on the wife instead of taking blame himself. Hello, mm -hmm. Adam and Eve. Is oh you're the issue, mm -hmm. you know? Instead of taking some blame for it, right? And then there becomes finger pointing, right? Um, so the way to get through that division is actually through love, like through like putting the sword down and authentically loving each other. You know, so if you're a husband and you point out your wife's imperfections and you tell her she nags and her, the house isn't clean or she should do more or she's not beautiful, like that's just push, you know, like. You that's, got the, that, that's the opposite of manhood, first of all. Yes. Like, it's just awful. And it's, it breaks my heart how many men, because I'll hear that from women, like he says, I don't do enough around the house. And I'm not saying we can't get better at certain household duties, but how unmanly that is. Yeah, here's <laughs> the one thing, like, you know, my wife's very self-aware. She's a grown woman. She knows her weaknesses. I know mine, mm -hmm. right? I don't need to point out her weaknesses. You know, because if you know your weaknesses, you probably have hated yourself for your weaknesses at some point. You've probably, you know, just despised some of those weaknesses. You know, man, I'm not as clean as I should be or organized. And I know that affects people. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, that I find has been effective, my wife will say to me, because she knows her weaknesses, she'll say, thanks for loving me in my imperfection. I know you see them, but you don't point them out. I know what they are. Mm -hmm. but you love me anyway, right? And that's that's been a lot of years of mm -hmm. just trying to get there. Um, you know, so one of the ways to break those barriers is to begin to, you know, if you're a husband, like you should wake up every day and tell your wife she's beautiful, that you see her, that she is worthy, you know, um, like just small little deposits of those types of comments and affection to your wife. Um, is extremely, extremely important. Right? And what makes her trust you is not so much that you know the right things to do for your marriage, but that you love her enough to do them. 
and and here's the thing um is is the this isn't based on a feeling okay so if my wife goes gets ready we're going to uh, a gala or a wedding she's obviously gonna look more beautiful than she does than when she wakes up in the morning okay <laughs> it's a beautiful dress she's made up and it's like whoa i feel like she's really pretty mm -hmm. but the reality is she's just as beautiful when she wakes up in the morning as when she's dressed for the gala and if i treat that differently she will know in a sense of you don't have to feel like your spouse is beautiful to tell her mm -hmm. you see what i'm saying mm -hmm. you have to know because love is a choice you got to know that she's beautiful right you're choosing to say you're beautiful even though like your hair is like wacky and you haven't brushed your teeth yet like <laughs> i'm choosing to say that you are because i know in my mind that you are mm -hmm. right from the day that we got married so it's not about a feeling when you affirm each other it's about the reality of love to choose right so you may feel like your husband is not doing a good job but you're choosing to affirm him because you know that's love right mm -hmm. uh and, and and when you begin to push through past the feeling into choosing you you begin to deposit authentic love into each other's hearts and i think it's a manly thing to be worried about and and to be on top of and um it's unfortunate that in American relationships, typically, that's the woman's domain to worry about these things. Right. I think that's very telling that yeah, 95% or whatever that you said is mostly, 95% women are looking to work on their marriage. And, you know, now, let I'm me, sure there's a layer to it. Yeah, and let me shrink that a little bit. Like, you know, not all of those, like, some of those are easy. It's like, hey... Honey, do you want to do this marriage coaching or going? Yeah, sure. Sign us up. Right. You know, so sometimes like the woman is just handling more of the details of like signing us right. up. Like, you know, Gretchen will yeah. sign us up for stuff. And I'm like, sure. Yeah. So I know that it's a little bit less because the guy's like, I don't even know how to turn on the computer or whatever. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I get that. But yet there is a largest statistic of folks that, you know, women who are for me, like her reaching out for like the help. And she's says this, you know, I got to convince my husband to do this i hear that very 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 often more often than i'd like and here's the thing for guys listening is the most important thing that you can work on outside of your relationship with god is your marriage that's the absolute most important thing so if you say well i invest in work and time hobbies to get better at those if if you're not investing uh time in your marriage more than those th then you're I would say that your priorities are off, you know, every couple's a little bit different on what you invest, how you invest, how much time, yada, yada. But if you're not, then you're, what you're saying is that that's less important than other things. And certainly at some point, the relationship's going to feel the effect of that. I think men just need to realize that if you get better at the marriage things, they don't take as much invest investment energy. Like when we start something new, that we don't know how to do well. It takes a lot of our mental energy. It takes a lot of our effort, right? But as you get better at these things and they become more second nature, it's not like you're thinking about this all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like you just do it. You just, when you're with your wife, you're a better husband, you know, eventually. And so it's not like it, it consumes your thoughts all the time, but you do need to go through a period where you are super focused on it and learning these new skills. Get through that to where they become habit and second nature 
And then uh, you enter a beautiful stage of marriage where it's just naturally satisfying and fulfilling without so much effort in the sense of I'm doing something I don't feel like doing. Right. You know what I mean? Eventually, you like being a good husband. <laughs> like, it's a good thing. And you, and you realize, wow, I was better than I thought I was. And that's where we, we want to get as men, you know? And I think we're just, we think it's always going to be too hard. It might as well not. Right. Well, when, you know, when authentic love isn't at play in the relationship, we feel like love confines us. Like it, it's holding us down from, from being who we want to be and the things that we want to do. Like there's no freedom. It's confining. But actually, authentic love actually sets us free to be fully who we are, right? Certainly there's sacrifices to authentic love. We give up some of ourselves, just like Christ did. But at the same time, when we authentically love each other, we set each other free to be fully who they are, who the spouse is, right? So there's a difference between like, you know, you love your spouse, whatever, you know, she says, oh, you're going fishing again. Instead of saying, you should go fishing again. You see what I'm saying? There's, mm-hmm. there's a difference in those two. When you authentically love, it's like, of course I want you to go fishing. Of course I want to set you free to do what you love because I feel first. I feel like you have invested in me. You see me. And if men in particular would invest and see their spouse and pour authentic love into that, they would find that they would no longer be confined or feel um, you know, enslaved are the ball and chain, but they actually be set free to be fully who they are because authentic love sets you free. It does not hold you bound. So that's the beauty of marriage, you know, and that's sort of the, you know, the give and take. And that's sort of the, the myth that we fall into is if I give too much and I open myself up, I'm going to actually be more in bondage. And the opposite is actually true, you know. It's through dying that we rise. It's that's where we find freedom. It's through giving that we receive. So the challenge for all of us as men is to continue on that path of really working on authentic love in our relationship, but at the same time working on ourselves, you know, because there's nothing more manly than admitting our faults, right? And where where Adam could have stepped in front of Eve and said, I I was I was behind this. I take the blame for it. Whereas men, we we want to step into the shadows of our spouse and say, it's her fault. I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to work on me. And the most manly thing to do is to step in front and say, I'll take the lead. I want to work on me. And trust me, your family will follow. You know, your spouse will follow your lead on that. So, all right, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. The Paul George Show is made possible in part by our partners at Solidarity HealthShare. Solidarity is the Catholic solution to the healthcare problem. Are you paying too much for your healthcare cost? Solidarity HealthShare is a healthcare sharing ministry which provides an ethical way to fund healthcare costs while protecting and practicing our Catholic beliefs. Best yet, Solidarity HealthShare's members are exempt from the fines and penalties in the Affordable Care Act. Visit SolidarityHealthShare.org. That's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening in today, whether you're on the podcast or on the radio show, KLFT Radio. 
Um, thanks for being a part of the show. If you missed part of the show, you can always go back and find it on the podcast, Google Play, SoundCloud, iTunes. Uh, just search Paul George Show and it'll uh, be up there. Yeah, we've had some great conversations today. The first segment, um, just awesome conversation about, you know, uh, seeing folks and the injustice and homeless and just what Christ would do. And then the second segment about marriage a little bit. So it's been good. Um, so here's what I'm thinking. We haven't done maybe in a couple of weeks, at least last week is a six pack of questions. Question. Question number one, Paul, have you had any success taking a guy from, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I don't want to work on my marriage. I don't want to invest in this to actually motivate him correctly. Like, has that happened? Have you seen that happen? Tell me about it. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent, you know, and you know, if I can get the guy to show up with his wife for just a first conversation and he sees the results and, and, and just feels the progress of like, Oh, I can do this. And this isn't as hard as I thought or what I made it out to be. And, you know, feels that his wife is responding, um, feels that actually through being vulnerable, um, that's empowering to the relationship. It's not suffocating. Um, that, that, yeah, there's been great, great success. Now, one of the things that we kind of ask when we're working with couples is that, you know, we do at least like five sessions with them to kind of work through it. So not only working through maybe the issues, but to give some tools on the back end on like how to keep going. But, um, just cause we want an investment, you know, like there's an investment in working on that, but you know, and it's not always a guy, but a lot of times. And I think just, you know, for for us men, it's just about pride a lot of times to find the humility to say, yeah, I, I do need to work on some things and, and I'm I'm not going to be afraid to admit it and do it. But that can be really scary, you know, because we don't know what that will unearth, <laughs> right? And, you know, our family of origin plays an effect in our relationship and to deal with that sometimes is a little scary, some past mistakes or wounds. But look, all those are manageable and because God is so generous and his grace is so abundant, he does not leave us abandoned or stranded ever in our need for his grace. So that grace is always there to, you know, put a, put a bandage on it and let the wound heal. Question number two, what do you think, uh, maybe one or two skills that men really need to have in marriage or maybe are the, the most important things to continue to work on? You know, one of the things that, that men are good at is that just, um, you know, to, to see the reality of what's going on, you know, mm -hmm. and that, and that is the flip side is like, Oh no, I don't want to deal with it. But, uh, you know, I think men have the ability to see needs and do something about it. You know, so oftentimes men get sort of the blame of like, Oh, you're always trying to fix things or, you know, whatever. That's a good thing as well. You know, so if you see like, hey, you and your wife are, you know, just growing distant, you know, see the need and take her on a date, you know, see the need and schedule a retreat or, you know, see the need and respond to it. I think it's one of the things that men can be better at and proactive in is acknowledging the need and doing something about it. You know, um, and I think the second thing more on sort of a non-practical level is or sort of practical, but like more internally, you know, um, is, you know, doing a sort of a self-evaluation 
of like, mm. wh- where do I need to grow in, in my marriage and my relationship? And maybe, maybe some of that's on, on the personal side. Like, you know, I know there's some issues that I haven't dealt with or haven't thought about and, you know, I, I need to deal with them. You know, maybe I need to talk to someone. Maybe it's not a marriage issue. Maybe it's a personal issue that I have to deal with that is affecting the marriage, you know? And, you know, so I, I know before I got married, there were a lot of, you know, some personal issues that I have from my family of origin that I know I had to deal with that were affecting and would affect the, the marriage relationship. And that's just, you know, we're all different. We all have different stories. So sometimes it's really just dealing with ourselves, mm-hmm. you know. Question number three, speaking of that, so it's been a while, a while that this issue has been in place where women act more like spiritual leaders than men in the church some a lot um so for example women are more active in ministries in the church women uh attend more things like retreats whatever um what is it about that you know it's it seems like some men only want to be in charge and if they can't be in charge they don't want to be a part of it, it seems like some men just aren't interested in the spiritual life but they're like good men in general you know like they treat people well how do we make sense of this, this kind of general apathy of men towards spiritual things or church things that seems to be going on? Yeah, it seems like, you know, in a lot of ways, some men think, you know, spirituality is weak. You know, it's for women. You know, I think sometimes men feel intimidated because their wife maybe has a a different or seems like a better spiritual life than they do. So they're like, that's your thing. And I think for women on the spiritual level with your husband, it comes back to encouraging your husband spiritually instead of pointing out what he can't do, what he doesn't know, or that you're better spiritually is really encouraging him in the spiritual life, you know, like, you know, and meeting him where he is. So, and look in the relationship, a lot of times, like, you know, I would say this, like my, I feel like my wife has a tendency to discern and hear God better than I do. You know, she has, in her gift as a woman, there's definitely some spiritual gifts there that I don't have as a man, right? Or feel like I have. But then the opposite is true. You know, I have some spiritual gifts that she doesn't have as a woman. And when we come together, we complement each other on those things, you know? So it's not the role of the woman to also be the spiritual man of the house and the spiritual woman of the house. You know, the role of the woman is to encourage the man to to step into his rightful spiritual shoes and that might take longer than others. That's fine, but it's not your role to be in his shoes. It's your role to encourage him to be in his shoes. Right. And so for men, it's, it's, it's to not be afraid to take one step at a time, you know, and, um, you know, start by, you know, going to mass with your family for goodness sakes. Like just do that. Right. Show up, uh, start by, um, you know, saying grace at the table, if you've never done that small step, start by saying a rosary with your family and just being there and leading it or asking someone to lead it. That's a good man thing to do. Delegate, right? Like <laughs> just, just those small steps. And what ends up happening, it's like the more that you get in the batter's box, the more that you are familiar with the game and that you're comfortable, you know, with, with playing. And I think the same is with spiritual life. You know, maybe you, you grew up and, you know, your dad never prayed, your family never prayed. You never even know what it felt like to be around that. So it's learning a whole new thing and, and it just takes time. So. Yeah. And I, as a man that does ministry, I feel like I take some responsibility on that too. 
because other religions aren't necessarily like that where the men aren't, you know, don't feel responsible. It seems like, I mean, at least in, in places, in other religions, men share a burden, have a, have a larger burden of the responsibility for the religious and the spiritual in their household. Um, so maybe it's, it's us too in the church helping men see where their place is and what a masculine, what it looks like to be masculine and religious. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a good point. Definitely. And it's culturally, you know, in some of those other world religions, culturally, it's, it's very culturally acceptable for the man to, you know, assume. And if he doesn't assume spiritual, you know, role that he's like, not manly. Wrong, yeah. You know, something's wrong with him. So, you know, something weird within our culture, but you know, it's very manly to be the spiritual head and, and to take that leadership and to compliment your wife because there again, there are some things spiritually that your wife's gonna just be better at or know and and to lean on each other, that's where you compliment mm-hmm. each other, you know. That's what's really important. At question four, we talked a bit about homelessness in the first segment. Do you have any you, you talked about uh setting up homeless shelters in during Hurricane Katrina. Do you have any stories from that? Yeah. Uh, I mean I've I had a couple of people ask me to do their wedding in the shelter. (laughs) They're like, Pastor Paul, can you uh, do our wedding while we're here? And I was like, actually, I can't. I can't can't do that. I can't do that. Um, Some really powerful stories of just, you know, that were really difficult for people who lost everything, including a loved one in the process of the storm. And I think it was the first time that I learned to grieve with people. Mm. And that was really hard, you know, mm. grieving the loss of their home, th- their family, a loved one, a pet, uh, their neighborhood. Um, so one of the most powerful moments was taking busloads of folks put in, and driving them back into the city to basically say goodbye mm. to, to their things because it was it was done. You know, once the water had come down, it was like, oh, this is all going to be torn down. So that that grieving process. And I, and I think you, that's where you learn to love folks, you know, and, you know, people who are suffering is just be there with them. You don't have to have the answer, but yeah. All right. Question number five. So you talked a bit about there's third world needs out there on mission trips, but there's also needs right in our own city. Um, maybe give me a top do and a top don't for a family that wants to pay more attention to the needs very close to them down the street in the city? What's something they could do and what's something they should maybe not do? Well, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but look, just take it with a grain of salt is if, if you just go on mission trip, but you don't do something in your own city, I think you're missing the point on what it means to be Jesus and love your neighbor, right? Because we have little third worlds in our own town. So uh, do both. That's fine. But don't do one or the other in a sense of like, don't disregard what's around you in your neighborhood. So give to your homeless shelter, go to the soup kitchen, put granola bars in your car and give them to the homeless or dollar bills and just help your family acknowledge that there's an, you know, there are people in need right around us and, and just be proactive in that and talk about it at dinner and in homes, you know, so that it, you're just aware of the need. And I think like for us, it's even like with the third world, we can kind of shut it off and not think about it. So why don't we adopt a kid in a sense of like send money to a village or, you know, like talk about what's going on in 
Nicaragua or Honduras and, you know, what are people dealing with? And so, so that, you know, that we're aware that, that there are suffering people in the other world that we need to think about as well. So I think it's important. Question six, for guys that are dating, we kind of talked about the dating environment being very weird. Um, how, maybe, maybe tell me how a young man should approach dating or what maybe his discernment process should be when he's, when he's preparing to go on dates and Well, and one, take the lead. You know, if, if you're looking for a woman to take the lead on dating, then you've already just started on the wrong foot. Like a woman wants you to take the lead, wants to know that you pursue them and love them. And look, here's the thing. If you're a guy listening and you're like, I don't know how to date, that's okay. So my advice to you there is find someone an older person, a married person, a, a mentor, and just go to them and be like, I don't know how to date. What do I do? Like, it's okay to admit where we're, we don't know and help get help to fill the gaps, like get mentorship and some coaching and some, some life lessons. I mean, I did that, you know, I still do that. So I think it's really important for you as a guy is just to admit what you don't know so that you can learn, you know, and if you're not good at dating, don't know how to date, never dated, uh, don't know what works in dating, like get an actual mentor. Don't Google it. Like, <laughs> like get an actual Definitely a mentor who has a healthy marriage. Yeah. Human person to like answer Not those your questions. Older for brother you. probably shouldn't be your mentor. Yeah. It's like it. And it's great, you know, but, um, you know, and that'll show signs that you're willing to grow before you ever even get married. And that's a good quality that you want to have because you're always going to be growing in your marriage. All right. Thanks for listening in. It's a great show. You guys. Thanks. Um, Uncle Chad and Deacon Adam <laughs> and uh, Mr. Paul. Uh, so anyway, uh, get the show on podcast, share it. I uh, love it. And thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. God bless.